Objections Overruled 1 and 2 audiobooks are produced by Lutheran Public Radio and are made possible with support from listeners like you. You can contribute to the production of future audiobooks at issuesetc.org support. Look for Objections Overruled 3 in December of 2023. Jesus Didn't Physically Rise from the Dead John Warwick Montgomery The idea that Jesus did not really die on the cross is implausible based on scriptural descriptions of both his crucified and resurrected body. The original texts of Scripture are far better attested and preserved than any ancient documents normally considered credible by scholars. The testimonies contained in Scripture stand up against examination of whether a witness is reliable. The resurrection miracle meets a test humans have been passing for millennia, determining whether a body is dead or alive. A spiritual resurrection is impossible to prove because it has no physical standard. Jesus' physical resurrection is the promise and proof of our own physical resurrection to eternity. Unbelievers have often said that Jesus could not have survived crucifixion. Let's see if that's so or not, and why the right answer to the question is of utmost importance. Objections to a Physical Resurrection Typical of those objecting to Jesus' physical resurrection was a German theologian, Karl Venturini. Early in the 19th century, Venturini said that Jesus had not really died on the cross but had swooned. According to this swoon theory, the disciples thought that Jesus had been resurrected, but really, he had just fainted and later woke up. What do you think? My view is that if you can believe that, you shouldn't have any problem believing in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, since such a swoon would have been more miraculous than the resurrection. Why? Here are just a few reasons. 1. The Roman soldiers crucifying Jesus knew their business. They had conducted many, many crucifixions in that cruel time of history. 2. According to the accounts, the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a sword to make sure that he was dead. Out came blood and water, lymph, showing that he was no longer living. 3. Would the disciples not have known the difference between a gloriously risen Christ and someone who had been subjected to torture for hours and nailed to a cross? 4. What would have happened to Jesus afterwards? Would he have hidden himself away somewhere? Gone into retirement? In fact, Jesus was the last person who would lie about himself or deceive others. By the way, you might like to read the most careful medical study of Jesus' death as published some years ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The authors conclude that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. Let the historical records make the decision. Venturini is a very good, or very bad, example of what happens when people do not pay attention to the first-hand historical reports of Jesus' life, ministry, and death. All we know about Jesus comes from those New Testament records. If a person ignores them, he or she no longer does history. If one substitutes speculation for history, the results are of no value whatsoever. Suppose we were to do the same thing with other historical figures. A fine biblical theologian of the 19th century, Richard Whatley, who had a great sense of humor, wrote a book titled, Historical Doubts Relative to Napoleon Bonaparte. 
Skeptics had said that you couldn't believe the New Testament accounts of Jesus because everyone was prejudiced. Either they loved Jesus or they hated him. Whatley used their own argument to show, as a joke, that Napoleon had never existed since everyone writing about him either loved him or hated him. This shows that if you use bad reasoning about Jesus, you'll mess up history in general. But how good are the gospel records? Suppose we compare the New Testament books with other writings of the ancient world. What do we find? The existing manuscripts of the New Testament are far closer in time to their authors than any other books of the Greco-Roman world. Two among numerous examples are Caesar's Gallic Wars and Tacitus' Annals. There were 1,000 years between their composition and our first complete copies. When I was at university, I spent a semester studying the Latin poetry of Catullus. We have that poetry in only three manuscripts, and they are from 1,600 years later than the original writings. But for the New Testament, we have thousands of manuscripts, including ones dated to less than a century after the events described. Two virtually complete texts of the Gospels exist from as early as the 4th century, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. There is a fragment of the Gospel of John that must be dated before John's death around A.D. 95. Because the biblical books were regarded as sacred, they were copied with the greatest of care. We can be sure that what we have today is substantially what the apostolic writers or their associates actually wrote. Some years ago, I successfully debated a philosophy professor on this subject at the University of British Columbia. I showed that if you throw out the New Testament, you must at the same time discard virtually your entire knowledge of the classical world. My opponent then said, but no one believed him, All right, I shall throw out my knowledge of the classical world. A classics professor in the audience jumped up and cried, Good Lord, not that! And how reliable are the gospel witnesses? Of course, good documents could convey bad testimony. How good are the witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? As a lawyer, I am to assume that witnesses, just like the person or persons on trial, are innocent until proven guilty. Therefore, the burden of proof, the responsibility for proving that the testimony is unreliable and the witnesses are not to be trusted, must fall on the critic. Can critics of the life of Christ show that the witnesses— Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, etc., should not be trusted? Absolutely not. One technique lawyers use to see if a witness is reliable is to look first at the witness and then at what the witness says. The witness and the testimony are considered both from the standpoint of their basic nature and in terms of what might have influenced them. If we do this with the gospel writers, what do we find? In terms of character, they had no criminal records or psychological problems, and so cannot be dismissed as unreliable. They were clearly not influenced by their Jewish society to present Jesus as the Son of God, since the Jewish leadership did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. As for their writings, they have, as translator J.B. Phillips nicely put it, the ring of truth. A New Testament gospel does not always present the same information as another gospel, but they do not contradict each other. Rather, they complement each other. A lawyer loves to have two opposing witnesses say exactly the same thing. He knows that they have colluded with each other and cannot be trusted. Not so with the New Testament materials.
Archaeology backs up what the gospel witnesses declare. For example, we have an inscription dated about A.D. 30 that confirms what the Gospels say about Pontius Pilate, that he was prefect, governor of Judea at the time of Jesus' trial and death. I am also a certified international fraud examiner. Fraud examination generally tries to determine whether the three standard characteristics of alleged fraud are present, opportunity, motive, and low moral character. The Gospel writers and authors of the other New Testament books did not display those marks of fraud. They had no motive to lie about Jesus, quite the opposite, since the religious leadership of the country was dead set against the idea that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament, come to earth as Messiah and King of the Jews. Indeed, most of the New Testament writers died for their beliefs in Jesus' divinity. They had been taught by Jesus that lying was of the devil, John chapter 8, verses 44 to 45. So, they would not have lied even on his behalf. Had they attempted to lie, they would not have been able to get away with it anyway. Hostile witnesses, the Jewish religious leaders, were present throughout Jesus' ministry. They would have blown the whistle had the gospel witnesses given false testimony concerning him. If they were willing to crucify Jesus, they certainly would have had the means, motive, and opportunity to show that the New Testament writers were presenting false testimony. They did not do so because they could not. The Miracles Issue But what is the real source of arguments against the resurrection of Jesus? How can the critics ignore his appearances to a host of people, not all of whom were believers, over a 40-day period before he publicly ascended to heaven? How can anyone deny this when we know that over 500 people saw the risen Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The answer is that many people simply refuse to believe that miracles ever happen. How, logically, could anyone maintain that miracles never occur? You would have to look under every rock in the universe, past, present, and future, to make sure there wasn't a miracle going on there. No one can do that. If we want to be scientific, we need to check out the evidence for or against any miracle claim. Of course, there will be miracles for which the evidence is so poor or non-existent that we reject the supposed event. But if the evidence is good, we have no choice but to go with it. We don't know the universe so well that we can say that this or that event is impossible. However, isn't a resurrection so strange that we would need to have an infinite amount of evidence in favor of it? Hardly. A celebrated 18th-century English pastor, Thomas Sherlock, pointed out that a resurrection is simply someone dead now and alive later. We have plenty of information about the reverse, people alive now and dead later. But the evidence needed in both instances is exactly the same, being able to distinguish dead people from live people. Those living at the time of Christ were just as able to do this as we are. If they, or we, couldn't tell the difference between the live ones and the dead ones, we would be burying the wrong people. After the resurrection, Jesus ate with his disciples, Luke chapter 24. Go into a funeral parlor and offer someone present a McDonald's filet of fish. If he eats it, he is alive. Can't we just substitute a spiritual resurrection? But why not avoid all this by believing in a spiritual resurrection of Jesus, not a physical bodily one? Wouldn't that keep us from having to defend a real miracle? Maybe, but at much too high a cost. There is no evidence for a spiritual resurrection. 
Remember, after Easter morning, Jesus eats with the disciples. Doubting Thomas touches the nail prints in the resurrected Jesus' hands and thrusts his hand into the wound made by the soldiers who crucified Jesus, John chapter 20. And if Jesus had risen only spiritually, there would be no assurance that believers in him would, as he promised, be raised physically at the last judgment. In this regard, a wee philosophical point is worth mentioning. Evidence is possible for a physical event. But what evidence could ever exist for something purely spiritual? The people who go for naked spirituality are talking about things that no one could ever show to be true. Look at all the cults and isms that maintain, mutually contradictory, spiritual truths. Christianity must not fall into that pit. Christian faith begins with a physical virgin birth, attests to physical historical fulfillments of prophecies and actual miracles, and sees its Lord physically ascend into heaven with a promise of returning in the same manner at the end of time. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Let's not change Christianity from fact to some kind of unprovable mysticism. A final word about the importance of all this. But why is all this important? Answer, because salvation depends on it. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14 verse 6. And the Apostle Paul, writing under divine inspiration, told us specifically the nature of the saving gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Thus, the physical resurrection of our Lord is essential to eternal life. It is the foundation of our life with Christ after death and a central pillar of Christian faith. To deny it is to deny the truth of Christianity. But everyone who believes in the one whom God raised from the dead for our salvation will receive the wondrous gift Christ's resurrection provides.